HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Start exploring Audible with a free 30-day trial now. Visit audible.com slash HRN or text HRN to 500-500. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome uh, to Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. I'm Aaron Sanchez. And I'm Sarela Martinez. And we have the distinct pleasure of inviting an old dear friend, an absolute awesome farmer, and just more awesomer human being, Tim Stark. And brilliant author. And a brilliant author as well. I'm getting to that, Mom. Uh, Tim uh, is the owner of Erkerton Hill Farms, which started as a rooftop in Brooklyn many moons ago. Uh, his first tomato seedlings were actually 19 years ago, uh, and recently he has moved to a farm in Brooks County, PA, which is in between Reading and Allentown. Uh, you, you are responsible for over 200 varieties of heirloom tomatoes, and you sold at the Union Square Green Market in New York City for many years, and that's where I initially met you and been purchasing tomatoes and other goods from you for many years in my restaurants when I had them here in New York, and... Uh, we just want to welcome you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Great to be here. I, you know, it's been a long time. I've known you guys for so long. This is, <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. I, I'm so happy to sort of tell you that even though I grew up in Mexico, we, we grew up at 7,000 feet. So we didn't really have fresh tomatoes that, that often. So I did not grow up a big tomato fan. I mean, I really didn't. Then I get here, and everybody's into heirloom tomatoes, and everybody's into all this. And they find a good tomato, and it's like they found God. Yeah. You know, because, oh, my God, the tomatoes are great. That's what you feel all the time, and I think you're very much responsible for that yeah. dynamic. I think, Tim, you have literally um, informed and provided tomatoes and, and chilies and other things that you that you grow to some of the best restaurateurs and chefs in, in New York City, and you've really changed the narrative and perception of what people think of with tomatoes, right? Yeah. Um, you authored a wonderful book, which I've read, and I, I just I think every chef or, or, or food or home cook needs to read. It's called Heirloom, um, and you really sort of do a deep dive in, all, in the heirloom varietals of tomatoes and, and other things. Can you explain to our listeners... The, what an heirloom tomato is and how it differentiates from the common Roma beefsteak tomato that you find at whatever store you're at. Okay, I'll uh, 
Hopefully, I won't take too much time. An heirloom, what it basically means is the seed gets passed down from generation to generation. So we kind of had a desert of tomatoes here, just like you did because you were up at 7,000 feet. We had a desert of tomatoes because we really had these hybrids which were grown for shipping purposes. Mm -hmm. People never really had a a good tomato, but all those years there were people saving seeds to varieties. That's the heirloom that they passed down. So they would save the seed, replant it, and, and, and keep replanting it year after year after year. This was happening in, you know, Eastern Bloc countries. This was happening in, in hillbilly countries. This was happening everywhere. And suddenly, yeah, some of these seeds started taking over and getting, getting sold at markets. And people said, hey, these are really great. These are really great. It, it changed the whole it changed tomato growing forever. And then there were, you know, there were farmers like me that said, hey, I'm not going to grow the other ha- hybrids. I'm going to grow these heirlooms and I'm going to experiment with them. I think you say I had 200 varieties, maybe at one time. We're, we're a little less because yeah. you, we're, li- yeah, but probably altogether, we've probably grown more than 200 different varieties because we kept experimenting which ones we liked the most and which ones work best for us in our area. So the seed is passed down from generation to generation as opposed to a hybrid seed, which is kind of, it's sort of, Every year, it's it's an, it's a purposeful cross of two varieties to create the variety. So you couldn't take the seed out of a hybrid and and replant it and expect to get the exact same variety of tomato. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know when when I first talked to you about the segment, well, you told me that you were sitting there going through seeds, picking seeds. What, what, what is it that exactly that you were doing? You and your family were just going through. Yeah, we are going through. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. When you called me, I was literally, I was, I was like, oh, we haven't done this in a long time. I, I have so many different varieties of seeds, and some of them are going back 10, you know, after about five or six years, the seed doesn't germinate that well. And if it's an interesting variety, you better like start it or make sure you have, you have the seed somewhere, you know? So yeah, that was funny. You called and I was literally in this, you know, dust bowl of, okay, we need to go through these seed boxes and throw, you know, some of these seeds were way too old. And I'm like, I didn't really like this variety anyhow. And, and then, and then after that, we sort of decide where are we going to get this? You know, we we're low in this seed and that seed. And fortunately you can get so many new, so many different varieties of heirloom tomato seed now where you couldn't 20 years ago. We saved more seed 20 years ago, tomato seed. We had to because we were just, you know, we we were just starting to grow these tomatoes and you couldn't get them in a, you know, from commercial growers. Now there's small commercial growers all over the place and then they're proffering new varieties saying, hey, try this, try this. This is somebody's, you know. So in the meantime, there are people that are creating their own heirlooms. They're so what happens is they get an interesting cross in the field. They call it a sport, and they say, "Hey, I like this. It looks. It's got a nice color. It's got a good flavor." And then they save seed from that, and then the next year they plant it, and maybe twenty percent of them come out that way. But then they sequester the one that comes out the way the original. It takes about seven years of doing that, and the next year maybe thirty, forty percent, and you keep it from cross pollinating with other words. So new new heirlooms are being created by these real kind of ingenious people who deserve an enormous amount of the credit for it. Um, I've created some pepper varieties, mostly chili oh. pepper varieties. I find that creating tomatoes is, I don't know, it's a little, it's a little mucky saving tomato seeds. It's, it's like, it's messy. And there's like so many, there's so many really bright people out there that that's all they do. And they can, they probably like, they probably laugh at my, my attempts. But with chilies, we've come up with some really, really cool chilies, uh, you know, but so. Yeah, that reminds me of a yeah. story in, in the Isla Santo Guantepec when I went. Uh, she was teaching me how to make this very involved dish, you know, where you had fruits and chilies and meat, and you stir, stir it and stir it and stir it, uh, and stir it until it becomes a paste. 
And I said, do you do that? Do you do that, Venancia? She said, oh, no. At this age, it's better to lead the donkey than carry the load. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and I think it's important to mention, like, you know, people, you know, mass-produced tomatoes, I think a lot of these heirloom uh, varieties were lost over time because people wanted to streamline the tomato production mm-hmm. and having longer shelf life and being able to travel, as you say. And now people are not only just rescuing heirloom varietals and creating new ones, as you said, but also that's happening with squashes, with pumpkins. Oh, with everything. With yeah. everything. So it's a yeah. very interesting time in, yeah. in agriculture now that there's this huge mission to save these varietals. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's happening everywhere. And, 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 you know, and it's even, you know, sometimes you go through and, you know, they'll, you, you'll say, oh, this is an heirloom variety. I'm like, that's not an heirloom variety. It's actually, it's got such a, it's got, you know, the best way is to deal, you know, directly with the farmers a lot of times, because there's actually a lot of, interestingly enough, there's a lot of hybrids now that are um, bred to look like heirlooms. So that's oh, wow. something new that's happening. If you go into the seed catalogs, there are hybrids they look a lot like heirlooms and they actually do taste pretty good. And to be honest, I think the whole, you know, the whole, um, it's not just the heirloom, the variety that's grown. It's the way they're grown. That's really important. And what is the ideal way to grow? Uh, for me, the ideal way, a uh, lot of organic matter, a lot of compost, we get, um, we get organic, we get tons of it from, um, uh, an organic mushroom, uh, organic mushroom so so it's broken down compost a lot of organic matter so it has all the minerals and salts and all that stuff is in there already so it's yeah alive. so i started when i started out i just had a garden and you know when i started out i was just i mean i was a pauper i was a starving poet with a garden and the garden started to grow and when and one day you know that's sort of what the you know so one day it was like hey, why don't i just try to make this a farm since i don't seem to be able to make money at anything else and so it's, we still we still do the same thing we have we now have manure spreaders to spread the mushroom soil we plant cover crops you moved yeah. up in the yeah, world yeah, too. yeah. Are, 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 covering, are you using squash as a cover crop um we use a lot of um um uh, rye, uh, clover, um, rye, rye clover, clover vetch. Um, we, we grow a lot of, in the, in the fall, we grow a lot of turnips, those sweet turnips, and they grow in among the cover crops. And people came to visit the farm in November, and they, were, they, were, they said, oh, what are all those white? I was like, they're turnips. They're Japanese turnips. And oh, beautiful. There were so many of them. They were like so, I, I mean, we just, you know, so, so um, th- those are our main, and that's the other thing too, and that's just organic matter that we plow under in the spring. We don't, I mean, I, it's funny because people talk to me about like what fertilizer, what's, how much nitrogen, I'm like, I don't understand. I don't, under, I, we just have a big garden. It's just a big garden now, 50,000 tomatoes growing in that garden. Jeez. It doesn't, and you know, it gets weedy and we fight the weeds. We don't use any, we don't use any, pes- you know, we don't use any herbicides. We don't, we don't use pesticides. We don't. So, you know, if it's a rainy year, we have trouble because, you know, yeah, I mean, that's saturated. what's great about maybe parts of Mexico is you have a nice dry tomato season yeah. in yeah. places. But. So, I, and I think what's interesting to mention is that, you know, yes, you, you're a prolific uh, heirloom uh, farmer, but also uh, heirloom tomato farmer, but you also plant chilies, other, other different varietals. I think it's interesting to say that where tomatoes grow, Usually chilies will grow and yeah. squash and that Mesoamerican diet uh, is yeah. kind of all encompassing in that, in that same kind of area, no? Yeah, because, well, because yeah. Uh, because the squash adds cover and adds the nitrogen, no? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, the squash, yeah, it responds even better than nitrogen, the fixing of nitrogen of the, you know. Um, I, I think one other thing that we do, right, is we're up and uh, I've always, people also look at, they look at our fields, they're southern-facing hillsides, 
not the best, not real heavy soil. If it was real heavy soil, I'd be concerned. I'd, I'd, if it's real heavy soil and it rains too much, you're, you're kind of out of luck. So that's we, – we, we take our luck and go up in the hillsides and we can – irrigate now. I mean, in the early years, I didn't have any irrigation either. And that was, I think that was part of our secret. Unfortunately, when it rained really hard after a dry period, the tomatoes all split on us. And that was always yeah. embarrassing because all of a sudden we'd have tomatoes. But we have southern facing hillsides. So we want to get as much sunlight on the tomatoes. We want to get cool breezes to to keep the leaves dry, uh, to prevent funguses from, because we don't want to use fungicide either. And it's not the best, uh, you know. It, you know, you might get a smaller yield, but uh, the ground dries out. If it rains real hard, the ground, the the, the rain, it drains through, uh, and yet you don't want to be sitting in water. Those, and that's one thing. Chilies, tomatoes, you know, they don't want to. They don't like wet feet. Is the term we have. Hey, how about my my little favorite field tomatoes? The little ones. Oh yeah, yeah. The little yeah. The well, those are those are the one hundreds, right? No, no, um, no. She calls them. You say they grow wild. They grow wild along she the side the, side the, of the, the road the in Mexico. Tomates de milpa. Yeah. And they make a particular recipe called tachogobi, which is like really nothing. It's just garlic, some of the comapa chilies, the in a little bit of lard, yeah. and then the tomatoes until they split, and then you add whatever herb you want. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. It's fantastic because They're, it's just like. Yeah, there. That's a beautiful tomato. Um, incredible flavor. It grows like you know. It's like a little. It's like a little it's wild good. tomato. Yeah. Tiny. And the trick to that is, I mean, it's you know, is you need to have a serious picking crew because it takes it takes yeah. a long time yeah. to pick them. It's a lot of work to pick yeah. them. But it's only yeah. for a little while, so. Now nah, we have them. As soon as tomatoes come in, we have them till the frost. So we have oh, them till til July. You know, from July till 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 yeah. They can, and we keep replanting them and. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful tomato. It's got really kind of pretty good disease resistance because it's an, a wild variety. It has a, it can kind of stand up on its own. When other tomatoes are dying off, it keeps going. So, Tim, I think it's important to also mention to our listeners, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I get so perturbed when people start saying, I'm farm to table. Like, dude, that's not a genre. It's yeah. your job. It's yeah. kind of been happening since the beginning of time. You know, source the, the best yeah. ingredients closest to you, manipulate them the least, right? And, yeah. and let the ingredients shine. And I think that's extremely important. And you've been doing that. That's why I've bought product from you for many, many years when I had my restaurants here. Um, I think it's important to also mention, um, once you get your tomatoes, whether you're at a farmer's market or anywhere else like that, you pick, you get them, you bring them home. What are the do's and don'ts of how to store them? Because I know I don't ever refrigerate my tomatoes. Yeah, yeah no. And never, I think it's yeah. very important. People don't even know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very important. Do not refrigerate. Now, some people might say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to eat them all for a, for a week or something like that. Uh, you know, my, my feeling is, well, just let them sit out. And if, if, if a bad spot shows up, just cut it out. And, you know, because they I'll just get better them. and better. Or yeah. cook them, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or cook them down. Cook them down. Make sauce with them. Yeah, um... You know, just, you know, if you get them from a market, I mean, that's the other trick that we have is we, you know, people never quite un- realize that we literally, we pick, we pick for two days and pack for that second day and they go to market and we blow them out. We, we don't bring, we pretty much don't bring anything back. So every, everything you buy, you know, so, so they're, they're right off the, they're right out of the field. They're coming, that they're, they're coming. So, you know, when you're buying them to begin with, uh, you know, get a sense that, you know, they, they, ha- you can tell if the. If the stem where the stem was pulled out, if it looks really, really dark, like, you know, that it's been off the vine for a long time. Cause, yeah. cause that, like asparagus. 
Yeah, yeah. When I used to buy two flats from you at a clip, remember? And yeah. I would buy them on, you know, Wednesdays, and I'd be done by Friday. In the and then we'd be back at the market Saturday. Yeah, come yeah. Get more. And then I'd yeah. get more, and then yeah. we would put them on sheet trays and speed racks and leave them out. Yeah. And right nearby the kitchen, and we would just rock and roll with them, and they would go in a heartbeat. Um, just one thing I think that's important to mention. I wrote a really fantastic book once by a guy named Felipe Armesto. He wrote a book called Near a Thousand Tables. He's a scholar from Oxford, and he was talking about how ingredients migrate. And I think it's important because people associate tomatoes somehow with Italy, right? Yeah. They think that that's like the birthplace of yeah. tomatoes. And one of the things that he talks about, which is interesting, is called the Columbus Exchange, which is basically where a product is native to one land but allowed to proliferate and succeed in another land. And mm -hmm. one of the things he associates it with is the latitude. So if you look at Italy, southern Italy, and where Mexico is, it's on the same latitude. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the weather patterns are similar, and maybe the soil content will be more conducive for tomatoes. It, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, but then if you look at where where we are up in up in yeah. Pennsylvania, it's funny. It it you know it um uh, it. That yeah, that is the one. That is the one thing. And it, interestingly enough, all these all these different people think all these different colored heirlooms. All those colors existed in the in the old world before they yeah. before they moved over to the they, those those that proliferate. If you ever look at the different potatoes that are in Bolivia right now, we're we only we we only have a drop in the bucket variety of the variety of potatoes. Um, but it's the same with tomatoes. All those colors and varieties they they existed before. Um, it's interesting because it seems like where I am, I have, you know, people, I have an uncle that moved to, he moved to uh, California uh, years ago. And one of the things he says, he says, I cannot get a tomato like we had back in Pennsylvania. So it has to do with, and we're like, you know, we, we seem to buck that trend a little bit because we're up a little further north. It's a short season. They come on hard. The plants die off. Um, and, you know, I know one thing we do have a, we have a much more acidic soil than they do in California. We have, and, and I think the acidity in the soil is, you know, it gives it it gives that acidic whatever to the tomato. And what does tomatoes you know? want? Acid. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. You, when you serve them or you work with them. That's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what gives it its flavor, the yeah. acid. Yeah. And, you know, with the, yeah, was, it gives it its bite. You know, that's what people crave. Um, you know, I don't want to put, I mean, I, I, they're great, you know, great tomatoes. And, but he, he has, he has a beautiful place, uh, you know, with, it's, it's in the, in the, um, uh, in in the old fruit growing district, he has a lot of fruit trees. But he says, "I cannot grow a tomato like I had in Pennsylvania. I cannot." He just you know. probably because of the sun or something. What's that? Maybe because of the sun. Maybe the I think it's the acidity of the soil. I think it's yeah, more I alkaline it's, yeah. soil. I think it's you know it's a different and maybe it's a different tomato you have. Maybe it's maybe someone in California would come here and say, "Oh, I can't yeah. I can't find it." You know, maybe it's I don't I'm not I don't know. I think there is something about our soil, the acidity of it. Well, everywhere there are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everywhere. You know what? Something that doesn't get covered a lot, and, and I really am interested in, is the how the role of green markets in in promoting biodiversity. Yeah. You know, before before the the green markets, we only had like two kinds of potatoes, yeah. three kinds of onions, and now because of the green markets, all of a sudden we have all kinds of greens, all kinds of tomatoes. It's like, yeah. I think that's that's a very thing, important thing to know to go in and ma the markets and get different things so you can experience different flavors and. Yeah, it's it's exciting to watch because now it's and now it's going. You have a whole. A whole new school of young farmers coming in. They're taking it a whole nother. Yeah, they're taking it even further than ever. I mean, I I'm like I look at, 
I see what they're doing. A guy that worked for me is growing, you know, he went to Italy and like studied chicories and and now he's just growing chicories. Oh, Punterelli. But many, many beautiful chicories that look like little roses that you never knew ex wow. existed. And, he, and he's selling at the green market now and, and oh, doing awesome. really well. And it just... And I, you know, I, tr I, I try to go, tr and they, they just, they go to seed on me. I'm like, what do you, I don't know what this guy does, but he's doing it right. He's, he did, he studied it, he learned it. And you have just a lot of young farmers just taking it a whole new direction. You Is know? that like thistle? Like a radicchio, all kinds yeah. of radicchios, yeah. yeah um, like with Vertico, a, Traviano, like Puntarelle. Uh, um, Tardivo, there's one, Tardivo, Puntarella, yeah, Puntarella, Punta, you know, just... I, and who knew, you know, he, yeah. and he, I mean, and now he's, he's, he's selling to, you know, all the, the same chefs that I sell to because, because they go in for the chicories, you know, so, but he's starting a whole thing too. And then now all these other young people are going growing yeah. chicories. And, and I think what's very interesting to mention is that I think farmers markets obviously vary from what regions you're in, right? Yeah. So, and I think what's very interesting to see nowadays is that. You know, I know a lot of farmer markets have to hold each farmer accountable. So if you're not selling what you're planting, yeah. you know, that's a big issue. Yeah. One of the things, you know, I live in New Orleans now, so I sadly don't get your wonderful product. But one of the things that we struggle with farmers markets in New Orleans is that farmers plant what are in traditional recipes. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So if a gumbo has tomato, onion, bell pepper, celery, that's what they're going to bring to market because yeah. they know that that's going to move. Okra, right? Yeah, okra. So <laughs> yeah. for us, yeah. as chefs, to try to get a different palette of ingredients is yeah. so difficult. Yeah. And we're really working with a lot of young guys in the northern yeah. part of Louisiana to start planting different things so we have yeah. different things to cook. Yeah, keep you know? pushing. They will turn that around. They'll turn, I'm sure you're probably seeing it starting to turn around, right? Yeah. And in five or ten years... You know, it. I, you know, I. I just. I. You know, blows my mind to read the, read this. I just. You know, I. I hope. Uh, I. I just think they're. They're just going to be the, the the future force of farming in in America. And I hope. You know, and and I think more and more. I, I do feel like overall, the whole, we're being paid attention to by the powers that be, you know, yeah. a little more, but... But the know. awareness of, of, of where ingredients come from is at yeah. an all-time high in the yeah. United States. We, yeah. we have the real foodie. Yeah. The foodie has been born. Yeah. But we really had to learn it. It's yeah. kind of funny because the rest of the world, as oh, you you know, where you're from, they always had it. We had to learn it. We had to, we had to you know, we had to stop and go, wait, tomatoes from our side of the world. The tomatoes... It's not from Europe, you know. We we had a, we we're having to learn it. It's it, you know. But so we're, so what what do how do people use the tomatoes mostly? How many cook them and how many serve them raw? What do you have any idea? Ah, uh, you know, we 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 do plum tomatoes. We do all kinds of big plum tomatoes that you know people like to cook. We and we grow hybrid tomatoes. And I've always said we we can still grow good hybrid tomatoes because of the soil they grew in. And yeah. when I was young, we you know we had that's all we had when I was growing up. We always had good tomatoes in the garden and. Um, we, we get a lot of people just eating fresh, you know, eating, making salad because it's so simple, especially in the summer. You don't have to heat up the kitchen. You take it home, mm. slice it up, uh, and, you know, a little basil it. and whatever, a little, you know, so, yeah, go. throw it on a sandwich with a little mayonnaise, whatever, just, just easy. Like, it's the best. I mean, it's the, it's the best thing in a sandwich, a tomato. It just, you know, really you makes it. you have to season it. One of the things that I hate is when you get a sandwich with tomato and they don't put salt on it. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. avocado with no salt. Yeah. you got to do that. It's yeah. essential for everybody out there. Remember to always salt your tomatoes right but, when you're about to eat it. 
Yeah, yeah. But the best tomatoes, I think the best tomatoes, like because of all the minerals, I think it, it – there are a couple, especially the green zebra. That I, I always like to say it sort of has a built-in salt flavor yeah. it, because of all the minerals. It just – it's yeah. the, you know, I'm not sure what it is. but Well, it's a lot of calcium, magnesium, all uh, just, you know. But, yeah, you're right. It's it, – you know, you, you do have to season it. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is your one-stop location for spoken word entertainment and audio books. You can find everything from bestsellers to new releases and even celebrity memoirs. In fact, you can find my memoir on Audible. In it, I share stories from my life before people recognize me from TV. Search Audible for the title, Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. Now, my mom and I share many stories in this podcast, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. In my memoir, I talk about all the beautiful life lessons that my mom passed down to me that I still use every day. Audible members get one credit every month. So if you join now, you can check out my memoir today. Audible members also have full access to the Plus catalog and can listen all they want to thousands of included titles. Start exploring Audible with a free 30-day trial now. Visit audible.com HRN or text HRN to 500-500. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. So, so now we have to transition. I was about to say the very th- same thing, Mom. You, no wonder I'm your son. Yeah. Uh, we, had, uh, we have this ongoing debate, not a debate, but I think people are very confused about where where tomatillos are from? What variety of well, they're vegetable? From, they're originally from Mexico. Yeah, but they're related to the to the Cape gooseberry. Yeah, so they so have that they shell have, that a Cape they, gooseberry. They have that. Have. They have that husk. Yeah, it's very very sort of gelatinous. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of people use it. They make a tea with it, and they use it to in tamal dough to make to make the the dough even more fluffy. Oh yeah, but you know, like this, we've we've covered chipotle chili, which is one of those flavors that everybody universally loves. Well, tomatillo is another one. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's. I remember. I mean, it's it's that tartness that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I have a really re- easy recipe that I use as a base, and I just take like one garlic clove, a little bit of salt, one jalapeno. I puree that in the in the food processor or the blender. Add one pound of tomatillos and a big handful of cilantro and a puree it, and that's your salsa cruda. Oh, it's great. It's fresh, yeah. just fresh. Yeah. Just fresh. Yeah, yeah. Or you can put in a, an yeah. avocado and yeah. which to make the salsa verde. Yeah. Or you can put little things there. But, but cooked is also amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's important. Once you get the tomatillos, it's very important to soak them in water. 
uh, warm water, preferably I like to do it to get some of that, obviously the husk away, but get some of that waxy, mm. that waxy film that kind of gets on the outside of the tomatillo. So you got to wash them very diligently, make sure that they're clear of, of, the, of the shell and the husk and wash them well, and then you can go into many different applications and recipes. I never do that. I just, I just take off the thing and put them in the blender. Okay, mom. Well, I, I like to wash mine. <laughs> Maybe your salsas are a little earthier. Okay. Yeah, well, that's what I want. <laughs> I like earthy. Tomatillo, yeah. Tomatillo, you know, is related. It, it's in the nightshade family, as the tomato is. It's. Um, um, do you grow them? Oh yeah, I do. I, it's funny because we're starting to grow more and more. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Of course, I grow tomatillos. They are. They are. And I don't think. I don't think the most of the customers quite understand how good they are. Because um, really, for a number of years, we grew a lot of tomatillos, and we have a. We have a lot of workers from from Mexico. Of course. The, basically, I would they would ha- they would take them all and make salsas and bring yeah, them, of course. and then they'd make them for and they you know I'd eat the, it, it's just incredible. You know, and and, and they're, they're very different from the raw. Yeah. When you boil them and yeah. when you toast roast them, them. Yeah. roast them, yeah. roast them. Yeah, they roast them a lot. Is what yeah. they do. They ro- they make a roast because it has that roasted taste and it just oh my goodness, Delicious. it's so good. So we've gotten to the point where we grow more and more because I'm like well. You know, we can't just let the workers have them all. <laughs> so, so now we're, we do grow enough that we can take some to market. But uh, they definitely frown if they think, wait, is there going to be, you know, or some of these are staying here, I hope. <laughs> well, you know that uh, the first time I came to cook in New York was at Tavern on the Green. And Paul Prudhomme brought me and my, and my mom along to, to cook this meal for the, for the Conferie de Maitres Cuisinier. And we, I served, well, we served a, a crab enchilada with tomatillo sauce. Wow. Those, those, and, and this was like, you know, 1982, 1981. And the French chefs have never tasted any of that, and it blew their mind. Yeah, and it's funny, like, I remember, um, I don't know where we were, but we were cooking, and we were roasting all the chilies and, and, and browning and, and, and charring all the vegetables to make a salsa. And then one of the French chefs goes, uh, excuse me, but you're burning those vegetables. <laughs> I go, that's what we want, my friend. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's interesting to see how people, uh, uh, you know, approach different yeah. techniques and and, and, res- and ingredients. I think a question that I have for you, Tim, how do you know when a tomatillo is ripe? Or is there such a thing? Because a tomatillo uh, doesn't necessarily yeah. get ripe, right? It's well, to be it, fills the, it, it fills the husk and it... it I, I, and it starts to turn a kind of a yellow, kind of yellow. That's what we, you know. I mean, my guys, I, you know what? I They know better than I do. They're so I'm just like, nature. just pay. There's a second nature. They bring them in and they, you know. But um, I, I know it has to fill it, you know. Because it, 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 you know, it, the husk starts out and there's this huge husk. Mm-hmm. And then the fruit fills up the husk slowly as it grows. And then when it's sort of almost splitting at the seam where it's, you know, that's ideal to me. Yeah. Um, because then it's a big plump tomatillo. And if, if it... I don't know. Maybe you know because sometimes they get a yellow color. Maybe you have yellow well, and green see, I, uses. I for think them. that those use for some really mature tomatillos, but I don't like them that. I like them like around midway so that it'll be nice and tart. Mm-hmm. But also, there's another variety, which is the, the tomatillo milpero, which yeah. is the little ones that from like the little little tomatillos. Mm. They call those milpero. Or yeah. the the milpa. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. they're they're like the like the yeah. tomatoes that my mom likes from you. Yeah. Sort of in that same vein. And yeah. I would love your little tortillas too. Yeah. I found last last summer we were eating the yellow. We found that the yellow ones were they were like a fruit. They were you could eat them just just like well, that, like an fruit. apple. They were so I mean they were so tasty. Whereas the green ones seem more you know yeah they're tangier obviously they they have that sweet and sour taste when they're yellow. That, yeah, you know, no, no. The, yeah. The, the thing is that they're I think for making sauces. The, the less ripe ones are better. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I can 
That's yeah. Well, you have an expertise in that that I don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's okay. So, honey. so mom, we, you talked a little bit about your recipe with um, tomatillos. You want to talk about a recipe that you have with tomatoes? Well, I I sort of did. Yeah. You know, there's this recipe with using the field tomatoes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't realize when you buy a lot of beautiful tomatoes from someone like Tim, you'll have some extras, and it's okay to cook tomatoes. You know. It's called tachigori. Yeah. And I think that's important. So, Mom, is there some way that you can maybe break down and explain very simply why and how do you roast a tomato and griddle it? Well, the most important thing is to do it. Well, I like to do it on a comal. If it's clay, it would be better. But otherwise, you can use something or like a like a comal that's quest. Yeah, a, a griddle. A comal is a griddle. A cast, cast iron, iron. Yeah. So you want to cook it kind of slowly, but you want it to burn, actually. You know, one of, the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast is because we have all the ingredients now that are Mexican, and chefs here and in Mexico are not using the traditional methods. You know, they're, they're roasting the tomatoes under a broiler. Mm -hmm. you, know, so they, you know, they're doing a lot of mess. So the food doesn't taste Mexican, mm -hmm. even, even in Mexico, because they're not, they're not giving it the, that particular kind of treatment. So if you're going to roast tomatoes, you want to do it into chars and you start getting the little juice out and then immediately take it out and put it in a bowl. Yeah. And to catch all those wonderful juices. And, and don't be, yeah. don't take off all the burnt skin. You know, leave a little bit of it on it so that it could add as much smoky flavor as you want. And we all know the great chef Jose Andres, right, from Washington, D.C. You know, one of the things that I see a lot of home cooks make mistakes, even in professional kitchens where they remove the pulp Oh, and the yeah. seeds, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, and they yeah. want it just like the flesh. And I'm like, what? And Jose Andres has many different uh, dishes and, and techniques where he just uses the actual pulp oh, yeah. and features yeah. that yeah. as opposed to the flesh of the actual tomato. And I yeah. think that's something that's very interesting. That's one of the things I wrote about my book because yeah. I grew up, I used to pick the tomatoes out of the garden, and I'd, I'd suck those juice out. I'd, I'd like slurp them out, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they were so tasty. They yeah. were so good. Yeah, because like, it yeah. does change the flavor of a cooked dish. Yeah. Oh, but it yeah. has natural pectin, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, tomatoes uh, or no? Oh, what, what is yeah. like that? the little gelatiny sort of aspect of, yeah. of a, the inside of a tomato? It has that. No, yeah, the, it does have, yeah. The, but uh, the tomatillos really have it. Yeah. yeah. If you cook tomatillos the next day, it's going to be like a gel. Yeah. Absolutely. And it does not reconstitute perfectly well. You, you may as well cook it the next day. Yeah. But I, 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 love, the, I love the idea, the sort of the, the, the contrast between a tomatillo and, and, and a tomato and an heirloom tomato. I think it's really ph phenomenal. And I think the awareness and people seeking out uh, artisanal heirloom products is at an all-time high. Do you feel that, Tim? Do you think people yeah. are going out, being more informed, knowing what they're buying from you? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we don't have to. We don't have to answer as many. Questions. They they know exactly. They come up and they know exactly what they want. In the early years, yeah, we had to sing and dance and explain. And you know, now it just now they I, actually sometimes they know more than we do. You know, yeah. like oh, I didn't know that. You know, they're yeah, they're they're up to date and there's you know they're learning from other farmers. Like I said, some of these young farmers, whoo, they they're know what it. they're doing. Yeah, they're on it. They're all you know, and they're you know when they're not out in the field, they're. They're researching online and, and you know, yeah. and, yeah. Which reminds me, if, if people have questions, they can always go to www.zarela.com. And I always answer all my emails. What is your? Eckerton Hill Farm. Eckerton Hill, yeah, yeah. Eckerton Hill Farm at gmail.com, yeah. 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 And, and me, it's Aron at chefaronsanchez.com. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, we're here. That we have to consider my mom and myself and folks like Tim resources, and we love to have a dialogue about food and and ingredients and where they come from. That's what we're into. So uh, please engage us at any moment when it when you have questions. Or I like to say culinary quandaries. Or just visit the websites too, yeah, because yeah. I have so many recipes of all different kinds there. Yeah, and and um, so Tim, let's. I think one thing that we can mention is the seasonality of tomatoes, because I think a lot of people assume that yes, there's summer tomatoes, but it's not June necessarily. Can you talk a little bit about when tomatoes? Yeah. Obviously, for you here in, in the Northeast, how, how when are your tomatoes really are at their peak? Yeah, well, outdoor tomato. We we have, you know, we've slowly given in. I mean, it used to be if you had a cold spring, you wouldn't really be seeing tomatoes till late July or well, we always peak out. Our peak week is always the first week of August in yeah. Pennsylvania, where I am in Pennsylvania now. If you're in upstate New York, it's going to be probably mid to late August or um but that's when we hit our peak because we we do a first low, but we we actually do now grow in, in greenhouses too. So we will start picking in the greenhouses in June. But I, I find it really hard, uh, you know, to get them much earlier than June, even in the greenhouse, because they need a certain amount of sun. They love that sun. The more sun, the better. They really, it's after June outside in the field. I always find that you know the solstice is June twenty second. And and the cherries start to after the solstice they start yeah. ripening slowly they start trickling in it's almost though if they get over that hump and then the cherries start coming in then the medium sized and then by mid July we're picking a lot pretty yeah. heavily yeah fairly heavy by mid July the big big large heirlooms which take the longest to ripen start coming in and then they hit their peak first week of August yeah, yeah first are, week of August are they all uh, ripened on the, on the plant or do you cut them and oh yeah them? we ripen them yeah we, we try to okay we do try to get them before they get dead ripe on the plant I find if they get dead ripe on the plant they can sometimes get a little meal we try to but that's yeah. hard when it's really hot out <laughs> you you can walk down a line and pick a row and then you can go back and they're They've already ripened in the time you went and wow. picked, went through and picked. It's it's crazy. It's like so when you have fifty thousand tomatoes. I you know, if you've ever had a garden and six plants, and when they're bombing, they're bombing. That's a lot of tomatoes, and they're yeah. they're pouring out. And if you don't if you don't get them in time, they will split. I mean, you know, the majority of tomatoes you get. The, I mean, although I think this is changing some, but tomatoes that you, a lot of the tomatoes you get at the groceries are they're picked green. They say they're vine ripe, but they pick them when they're just starting to turn. They're just starting to turn kind of yellowish from the original green, and then and a lot of times, and and and, and then there are they put them in, uh, they they gas them. They use ethylene gas to ripen them, and then they put them in boxes. They they hit them with ethylene gas, and then they like they bananas. Bring, yeah, with bananas. And same. Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen these. You know these chambers in New Jersey, and they're like, yeah, bananas, and papayas too. They do all that. They they, I, I, I them. they submit them all to ethylene gas. You know, I, so, I, that's how I started. In El Paso I used to sell produce. What's that? In El Paso, that's how I started. I used to sell produce. Oh, did you? Uh-huh. Yeah, really? Yeah. Wow. My mom's had many different lives. Yeah. Many different. Yes, I was a social worker during the day. Yeah. Then I used to sell produce and cater. Uh, to Wyatt's cafeteria, mostly in Luby's cafeteria. Yeah. And then I would cater. I mean, I, I, I hardly ever slept anymore. I used to have a contract for GTE for 650 people to give them breakfast. Oh. I mean, I worked my ass off to get over here. So, Tim, what is um, the question I have? Why did you choose this particular part of the Northeast to have your farm? Why? Rye, Berks County, uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania. So that's where I grew up. Oh, wow. I mean, when I started the farm, 
I mean, literally, I, I, was, I didn't have money. I started, it was in my mom's backyard where the farm started. It started, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't even afford a rototiller then. I couldn't, I had, you know, I was a struggling writer. I had a, I had an apartment in Brooklyn. I had a job in Brooklyn. So I started all the seedlings in Brooklyn. And, and then I had them up in the rooftop of the brownstone I was living in. And then, I mean, like thousands of seedlings that I was running up and watering and changing and, and just, and finally I brought them back home to Pennsylvania and in my own backyard. Yeah, that's, there's, I had, it, because I was for, I had no, I couldn't have afford, I couldn't afford to pay rent someplace else. So it started in my mom's backyard and then it grew, um, you know, the farm grew, and then after about 12 years of farming, I actually bought a 58-acre farm and, and you know, and moved there. That was nine years ago. So, or no, that was 10, 11 years ago. Boy, time just flies. Wow, that's Yeah, wonderful. so probably the, when you were first coming back, I was still yeah, probably farming at, at Lenhartsville. And then we rented a place nearby that was uh, uh, five miles away, and I was – you know, I didn't own anything, and it was just I was running out. I didn't have – I never had enough irrigation, which probably contributed to the flavor some because mm-hmm. I could never get enough water on them. I'd have to run out into the fields in the middle of the night and change irrigation lines. And, you know, now we have it – you know, it's it's a lot better having everything in one place, you know. But it just uh, – so when I bought the farm, that was the year the book came out. I bought the farm later that year, and then, I, you know, it just became kind of – I don't know what I, I think I was always up, up until then I was complaining that I'll never buy a farm I'll never have. then finally I was at an auction and I bought the farm it was the year 2008 when everything was everything was crashing and and basically I was bidding against a developer for the farm and and everyone was shocked that a farmer at an auction and everyone was shocked that a farmer got it but developers didn't have as much money at that time because the economy was was tanking so wow. so that's how I got the farm and then you know you. it was like so so it's like and then since then that's why I started building greenhouse I put a deer fence around the whole farm and you got to come visit now yeah, we'll, yeah. Yeah. we'll come over it's, there and cook especially yeah oh, oh yeah we have a big we have a beautiful bread oven there now we bake we can bake bread we have a oh, you know, outdoor wood wood fired oven and you know you're speaking just, my language we'll <laughs> come up there we'll come up there in the summer I think it'll be nice. Yeah, you know, should. before you guys get too down. busy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're busy all the time, but we're even kind of surprisingly busy now. But good, just, you know. But we'll come like on a on, on a Sunday or something. Oh no, there's yeah, there's. I'm never too busy for that. So you come on a Sunday, come anytime. Really, really, just yeah. We no, I'm that. I'm never too. I mean, peak of the season is. You got it down to a science, Tim. Yeah. You've been doing it to a, so, so long. He's well, a, he's ready to to lead the donkey. Exactly, lead the donkey. <laughs> Don't be behind it. Um, well, Tim, I, I think it's safe to say that thank you so much. And this has been yeah. ex- extremely rewarding and fulfilling. You know, we're not just somebody that we admire, but we were somebody that was really essential to the way, to the success of my restaurants in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. I yeah. always featured your products, proudly put the, your name on, on my menus of Eckerton Hill tomatoes. And I'm not the only chef that did that uh, and still do that to this day. So we're just really grateful. We. We really, our hearts are open to you. Well, I'm grateful too. I, I mean, I've known you both of you for so long. I've just, you know, it's, this is really special to be able to come here and do this. I really well, appreciate you, you having so me here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so again, um, Tim Stark was our guest today. He's the owner of Eckerton Hill Farms. Uh, the, the, he's just a man. He's and a, a hunk. And he's a hunk of a man, according to my mom. I can't say that necessarily, but but I can. You can. Um, please seek him out. Um, and, and just have his wonderful tomatoes and all the beautiful things he grows. Um, I'm Aaron Sanchez. 
And I'm Sarela Martinez. Thank you for joining us. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Central.